Good afternoon and welcome to today's CME CE activity. There is no commercial support. The speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. To receive your CME CE credits, please answer the survey evaluation after today's activity. If you are watching online, you will see an evaluation link in the description section of the video. Also, if you're viewing online and you have a question, there is ask a question icon at the bottom right hand of your player viewer screen. And so you can ask your question there and we'll ask it at the end of the session. It is my pleasure to introduce Drs. Meredith Pickett and Helen Ransom. Dr. Pickett serves on the NGHS inpatient palliative consult team in Gainesville. She received her BS from Samford University her doctorate from West Virginia School of Osteopathic Medicine and completed her family medicine residency at St. Vincent's East in Birmingham, Alabama, before serving as a rural, rural primary care attending for five years. During that time, she achieved certification through the Hospice Medical Director Certification Board, and in 2018, she moved to Richmond for her Hospice and Palliative Medicine Fellowship at the Virginia Commonwealth University. In addition to her current role on the inpatient palliative consult team, she serves as program director for the NGMC Hospice and Palliative Medicine Fellowship with its inaugural class to begin in summer of 2023. Dr. Ransom is the clinical ethicist for Northeast Georgia Health System. In her current role, Dr. Ransom provides leadership and resources to promote clinical ethics consultation, education, and policy development. Dr. Ransom received her BS from Tuskegee University in Biology, her Master's in Philosophy from University of Southern Mississippi, and her Doctor of Healthcare Ethics from Duquesne University. Dr. Ransom also completed a fellowship in clinical ethics at Bon Secours Richmond Health System in Richmond, Virginia. Join me in welcoming Drs. Pickett and Ransom. All right, well, Thank you to everyone for being here. Dr. Pickett and I will get started uh, with today's talk. Here are our objectives. We want this, we're gonna engage kind of in a conversation about POST um, that will give us a chance to examine what the POST form is and to recognize when the POST form is appropriate for which patient. Now to begin, we're gonna begin, I guess, with the fun part, and that's the ethical concepts. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so probably the best um, way to think about it is that there are a lot of different ethical concepts that you can maybe go into discussion of, with the post form. But just wanted to go with some of the highlights. So looking at autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, justice, and the principle of double effect. So with autonomy, of course, that's where we're looking at patients being able to have a say in their um, medical wishes, especially at the end of life. Um, with beneficence, you know, everybody knows, do no harm. And non-maleficence is not inflicting harm. Um, so with justice, you know, how do we respect the patient's decision? And the principle of double effect is a little bit tricky, but in its 
condensed form, uh, just making sure that whatever, like if you're intending a treatment to have, say, a certain medical benefit, you're going with that intention. Now, the side effect of that may be, you know, something that is harmful or maybe even death, um, but you always go as far as with the intention of the medical treatment. So that way, ethically, it is seen as appropriate um, care or treatment. And also, just in thinking about source ethics and its connection to the post, filling out the post form is voluntary. Um, patients should not be forced or coerced into filling out uh, this form. So one of the questions that we get a lot, maybe one of the questions we should get a lot, but a, uh, a question that we want people to be asking is what's the difference between the pulse and the advanced directive? Because um, we do see it, by the way, Dr. Gill, myself, the rest of the palliative team, we're social workers, when we say, what about a pulse? And that glazed over look of like, are you kidding me? We talk about advanced directives, I don't need another form. We've already done that. And a lot of times we'll say, well, what about the pulse? And they say, they already have an advanced directive. And we say, yep, what about a pulse? And so we get in this kind of chasing your tail and it gets really uncomfortable. So let's talk about the differences between the pulse and the advanced directive. So a pulse is a portable order. So if you had to sum it up in a very, very quick way, Pulse is an order, and we talk about this a lot when we do the residency goals of care talk. So this is not so much a concept, an essay, a thing that a patient wrote to put out there as sort of a, a special letter to my family and friends of what I may want at another time. This is an order, and we did it ourselves. Sorry, not used to wearing a mic. Um, a pulse addresses current health status, current health issues. So a lot of times we're talking about Advanced care planning, advanced care planning month with all of our activities. Advance, advance, advance. What about later? What about down the road? What's going to happen? Um, and this is addressing somebody's current medical status. So when we start talking about candidacy for do not resuscitate orders and that sort of thing, um, we have to make sure that they are a candidate for it currently so much as, not so much as saying when they're terminally ill at another point in time, if they were to have advanced heart disease, um, in stage cancer, et cetera. Um, a pulse does not require a witness, and we're gonna go through some of those details when we go through actually completing the form in a bit. Um, it requires one or two physician signatures, which we'll put some clarity on. It's completed by a patient with decision-making capacity, which we talk about all the time, um, but can also be completed for a patient who does not have capacity, which is a ding, 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 big difference from the advanced directive, because everybody has to have capacity to complete an advanced directive. So a pulse has those specific differences. Um, an advanced directive, on the other hand, is definitively gonna state who the decision maker is, and the subsequent pages, if you really read it, says at the top, these are my treatment preferences. Those are not physician orders, but those are treatment preferences meant as that sort of letter of guidance, that information to help guide the decision maker that they chose. Um, it lists treatment preferences, as we discussed, and it looks into future health events. The two that are pretty consistently mentioned are if I'm terminally ill or if I'm permanently unconscious. Um, it's completed um, with witnesses as well. A lot of times the question is asked, do I need a notary to come and do this? But an advanced directive requires two witnesses. Um, and there are some specifications that uh, may be a topic for another day on who can witness that. Um, but that would be an important uh, 
piece to set it apart from the pulse as well. Okay, so Georgia law gives us, you know, an idea of course the protections and what the pulse process should be. Um, additionally, you know, as far as what Dr. Pickett mentioned, it's an order. And having those kind of protections with an order, I think that most physicians would feel comfortable and confident in that process. Um, POST is a national program. Um, Georgia law does indicate that a physician is the person that will sign it as far as you know, giving it the order status. Um, it also, as far as with the law and having that support, uh, the POST program, they offer different types of education and supplement and also uh, copies of the form. Uh, so that way people can have more and gain more um, education and, and in a sense through that education gain confidence in you know, what the POST stands for and how it can be used not only within a hospital setting but in a, you know, kind of a nursing home setting and other healthcare facilities. Speaking of which, how do we, as far as uh, NGHS, connect to the POST? Now, in Georgia law, it does indicate that it is up to the healthcare facility to determine whether or not they want to you know, follow the POST, but making sure that it is indicated uh, within policy. Our policy is pretty much, I think, verbatim uh, what the law is. Um, so in making sure that we know about the post and what it entails, we're also supporting it through policy, which I said is just uh, complete uh, just representation of what the law indicates. And because of some of that stuff as far as between the law and the policy, Dr. Pickett is going to give us some of our key elements of this. I like to keep it really simple. So when there's something that the country does and then the state does and then the facility does, and often in our office I'll be like, no, what do I do? What, it, what is my marching order? How do I handle this? Um, and so one of the things that I like to look for is those common threads. And so when you go to the National Pulse website, it'll say, look, different places have different forms. We get it. It may seem a little overwhelming, a little confusing, but there's some pretty key elements that are addressed here. And so pretty much across the board, um, Pulse are going to follow um, these key elements, that they um, rely on a, on a Pulse form as a legally valid consent by the patient to the terms they're in, that an authorized person may not sign the pulse for a patient who has capacity, um, that a copy of a pulse is just as good as the original one. So when you have a patient that's getting ready to sign it and they're like, no, I need the blue ink pen so they can know it's the original, feel free to get them the blue ink pen, but a copy is just as good as the original as that can be helpful. Um, and that any incomplete section of a pulse implies full treatment. So even though there's still room for discussion, if you need to sit down and evaluate, hey, are we in a different place now than we were when we first signed this post? Um, let's say, for instance, somebody says, I don't want to mark anything about tube feeding because I don't know what to do. If that patient were admitted to us and we had a pulse and we saw that that area was blank and we can't get a hold of the decision maker to help us with that, that question, then you would assume full treatment at the maximum level within the confines of that box. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. Okay, so we kind of we went 
national, Georgia, Northeast. Now let's go back to the states. <laughs> so I came here from North Carolina, and in North Carolina, nurse practitioners and um, what is it? Doctors, nurse practitioners, and um, PAs can also they can sign as the you know person given the order. So what does that mean and all the you know, kind of the confusion? In Georgia, say if you got um, a post form from someone in North Carolina, as long as they follow and everything is signed as it uh, should be, you can follow that order here in Georgia. Um, also, what is kind of important too, since different states, this is really kind of for our uh, resident population, medical residents. So while we would love for you to stay here, there's a possibility that you may go you know, out of state. So want to encourage you to look at and become familiar with what does the pulse or how is the pulse used in whatever state that you're uh, gonna be practicing. It is really, uh, and this is something that we'll probably get into a little bit later, um, because of, I guess, kind of the decisions that are outlined in the pulse, some physicians are a little nervous about uh, this. Um, during a time when I was in my uh, fellowship, I received the consult. Someone had documentation from New York. They were in visiting in Virginia, so they were trying to really understand what they could and could not do. Um, some of these situations, I can understand as far as the time restraints can get a little um, interesting. Oh, that's probably a good word to use. But wanted to make sure that with the pulse, the beautiful thing about it, it is just one page. Yes. It's front and back. Um, so it makes making decisions in that, I guess, kind of intense moment uh, a little bit easier because of how it's laid out. And that's something that Dr. Pickett will get into in a step-by-step -step process. Mm -hmm. So who gets a pulse? We talked about the differences between pulse and advanced directive, and not everybody gets a pulse. So don't flood the hallways with your pulse forms waving for us all to sign it. So who gets one? Folks who have a life expectancy of 365 days or less. We realize prognosis is not perfection, so don't worry if you filled out a post for someone and they lived for 375 days. You're not out of compliance with the law. You acted within the scope of the prognosis that you saw. Um, and if the, or excuse me, if the person has been diagnosed with dementia, why is there a difference with that? Well, dementia, we know from the time of diagnosis till the time of a natural passing from dementia may be quite an extended period of time. So why would we do a pulse so much earlier just because somebody has dementia, some sort of favoritism we don't understand? No, dementia attacks the ability to have conversation about these things. So the earlier that we start a pulse for someone who's had a dementia diagnosis, the more likely you are to get a true sense of what we're all really trying to do and understanding what's important to the patient as opposed to asking the family, hey, five years ago when they were diagnosed, did you have any conversations about da 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 This is our chance to start that conversation with them early because as we all know, this is not a common conversation at the dinner table that people are thinking, oh, I just got this diagnosis. There are some things we should do today. Um, even though they told us the life expectancy may be another five years with dementia. So um, that's kind of your, your benchmarks for who gets one. 
Um, the Pulse form is extremely easy to find. If you Google Georgia Pulse, ta-da, this will show up for you. Um, Helen is right. This is a one-page form, front and back. Even easier than that. The only part you write on is the front. The back is the cheat sheet. So when you leave and you say, oh, now's my opportunity to do a Pulse, if only I could remember the earth-shaking CME that uh, Dr. Ransom uh, helped with. Don't worry, there's a cheat sheet on the back of that. So when you click print, it's actually harder to not get the cheat sheet because I've done it so much, I'm trying to just print off the front. So by default, you're going to get not only the form, you're going to get the cheat sheet. Hype yourself up, take a quick run through it, remind yourself of the rules, and go for it. Um, we're going to talk about some really easy ways to fill this out. And this feels like kindergarten CME 101, where I say, these are the boxes, and this is the box you check. But here's my recommendation, because a lot of times, maybe not for the palliative folks, but for a lot of other folks that are in the room, you didn't go in and say, all right, I'm going to meet the family, and we are going to have an express goals of care conversation, at the end of which we will document, and I'll make copies. That's not how these things work, right? You're in the middle of a conversation, and somebody says, I'm just not sure if I'm doing the right thing. And you don't want to say, time out, I've got to go get some paperwork and I'll come back later. So I encourage folks, go ahead and have what conversation you're going to have. Um, and the way that I often break it down is I talk about code status and care plan and, you know, then we talk about the other little bits along the way. Have the conversation you need to have, leave the room, get the form, and this is sort of my personal preference, is I want a family, even though this is my order that I'm signing, I'm filling out, I'm the physician, gosh darn it, they need to be able to see that they are participating in that. It's, it's, a, it's a slippery slope to losing somebody's trust when you come in and say, I have this about what you want and I've marked it for you. So what I encourage, have the conversation, take a yellow highlighter, mark the ones that they said they wanted, go back in the room and say, hey, I marked in yellow the things that we had talked about. Let's fill this out together really quick based on that conversation that we just had. So by you kind of showing them, not saying this is what you have to mark, but this is what we discussed, take some of that nervousness out of it. Of like, Ugh, now they've got a form with all the words, and I'm nervous because I usually have somebody else helping me with these things. Um, so I think that's a good way just to kind of get started. But the first box is the one that a lot of us are familiar with. It's good old-fashioned code status. Do you want CPR? Do you not want CPR? Um, and although I've heard it presented that way, and I appreciate the... Uh, the candor and the quickness of that question. Most folks don't know what their code status is. Um, most folks don't know, well, some know what CPR is, but they've seen a few episodes of ER and Grey's Anatomy yeah. and such. So they, they know about CPR, but I will encourage a lot of folks when you're talking through these things, do you want chest compressions? Say chest compressions. Do this so they know what you're talking about. And sometimes uh, you see people do back to you. Yeah, I don't want all this. Yeah, you were listening. You were paying attention. So make sure we're providing information in a way that they would understand it, also in a way we would understand it had we not had all of our medical background, um, and help them to also understand, for instance, that attempt resuscitation, CPR, that one seems pretty straightforward. The second one, allow natural death, A-N-D, do not attempt resuscitation. More people here, I have found, are used to do not attempt resuscitation and they're very nervous by that allow natural death because that starts to sound a little hospice -y to folks. So you're kind of nervous about that. Just be prepared to say, some states call this allow natural death, and we're going to talk about your care plan in the next little box there. So step one, code status. The second part, or part B, is medical interventions that patient has a pulse and or is breathing. So that's kind of the caveat that it's given. And it has what a lot of folks have heard me talk about, the three 
the three little care plans, kind of like the three little bears. And so they have it, um, nobody asked me when they put the form together. They have it in the reverse order of how I like to present it. But the first one is comfort measures, which is I only want you to keep me comfortable. I only want you to do symptom management. I don't want to keep doing all of the life prolonging things. That's not my first goal anymore. My first goal is to be comfortable. Um, and so that is effectively hospice care. So comfort measures, hospice care. The second one is limited interventions, limited additional interventions. Um, and that's sort of a, I want you to treat things. I want you to deal with the UTI. I want you to deal with the PE. I want you to deal with all those things. But generally speaking, I don't really want you to pop me back into the ICU because that's where we start doing these ventilator type things. So for someone who wants treatment but wants to be a DNR, this would be the box that you choose for them, the limited additional intervention. And then the last one is full treatment, to which a lot of people say, this starts to sound a lot like that box I just marked a minute ago. Yes. Um, and that being, I want you to treat everything and I have no limitations whatsoever for my care. I want the ventilator, I want the chest compressions, give me the shocks, give me all the things. So that part is just sort of your general day-to-day -day care plan for physicians. Then we get to antibiotics. And this is a stranger conversation to have. Yes. Um, we may remember from our history lessons that pneumonia used to be viewed as the gentleman's disease. So for instance, if you have a disease process that you anticipate dying from in the next year or two, and you're really not looking forward to that process, that's gonna be really hard for you. Maybe your mom died that way, and you don't wanna to have to experience that again. And you get pneumonia, you may choose not to treat that because you may say, this might be an easier way for me to go than if I treated that and finished battling stage four cancer over the next year in a slow process. So there are some folks who say, I do not want antibiotics whatsoever, and that is completely reasonable. Then there's the other two. There's determine use or limitation when infection occurs or use antibiotics if life can be prolonged. And I think there's a lot of hair splitting that we can do in that area. So not in an effort of coercion at all, but often I will tell folks, hey, if you're of the camp that if you have an infection, you most likely want to treat it, but it's worth having a quick conversation of, hey, you've got a UTI, do you want me to treat this now? I just advise most people to mark the middle blank, unless you're one of the folks that has a very hard answer to one way or the other. Um, then the next two blanks are gonna deal with artificial nutrition and hydration, which can be um, a very touchy subject for a lot of folks. So I tend to find it pretty interesting that folks are um, often very clear and forthcoming with things like CPR or not, or even burial or cremation. Like they thought way far ahead about those things. They feel very, very convicted. Um, but then artificial nutrition, a lot of folks have not thought about. And so your options here, I don't know if you can see them very well, but for um, this first on the left, no artificial nutrition by tube, which could be NG, OG, PEG. The second, a trial period of artificial nutrition by tube, which some people are like, well, what does that mean? Let's think about that. We do that all the time. Trial period, often through our nose. Long term, often through our belly. So I tell folks, if you'd be willing to give it a go with a nasal tube just to kind of see how it works, if you get better and you want a peg tube or you don't need a peg tube, great, we take it out and you fly and things go well. Versus maybe during that time you say, oh, this is really not that bad. I would rather have it here. We can do it long term. It doesn't really box you in one way or the other. Um, and then the last is for the people who say, no, I'm totally fine with that. I would take long term artificial nutrition by tube. However you need to do it, temporary, long term, that's the plan that I want. So they can mark that there. Um, and then the other one, if 
again, uh, in the land of things we don't talk about a whole lot. So no IV fluids whatsoever. Mm-hmm. A lot of times that's something that someone on a hospice care plan might choose. I don't want to come back and get IV fluids. Let me stay at home. Let me do my thing. Um, the second one being trial period of IV fluids. Although we're not saying it that way, that's generally what we're doing in the hospital. Or as you hear when you're out at the hairdresser, they just took me and I got a quick bag of fluids, you know, kind of thing. So that's your trial. Let's do it. Let's see if it works. If we need it, go for it. Um, and then the last one is long-term IV fluids. And that can sometimes get, again, in that hair splitting area. Are we talking about TPN? Are we talking about, I want IV fluids every time I come in? But we also know as a healthcare facility, not everybody that comes in should have IV fluids. So there's still room for having conversation about that. Um, but again, if people are kind of on the fence, not really sure, it's okay to say, maybe you would recommend just doing a trial and see how it goes. You can always refuse it later if you decide that you don't want it. Then we get into the signature section, and this is the part that often gets confusing. So if Helen has complete capacity, and I'm sorry, Helen, you meet the criteria for a pulse. So (laughs) we're completing this. We've talked about your choices, and you are the one making the decisions. We are the only two involved in that conversation. I'm going to sign it because it's my order, and then you're going to sign it because it's your choices. Yes. However... If you have gotten a little bit on the loopy train and you're not able to participate in this because you don't have capacity any longer, um, then we will go to your healthcare agent if you have our friendly advanced directive where we have a healthcare agent listed out. If your healthcare agent signs this, excellent, no problem. No more signatures needed. If someone other than the healthcare agent, so we're moving into legal next of kin terrain, which is a lot of times what we're dealing with. So if your legal next of kin is signing this, then you need a concurring physician. Now, this is a very important point. Please hear this very clearly. If two physicians have signed this page, this is not a two-physician DNR. Please do not document it that way. Again, a conversation for a different time. Two-physician DNR at our facility requires some ethics consults. There's a lot going into that. So although I celebrate... Anytime someone has done a pulse, please don't do a pulse and list it as a two-physician DNR because guess what doesn't hold when you go to another facility? A two-physician DNR, but a pulse does. So give yourself the credit for what you actually did. Um, Again, I don't know which one to do. Flip over to the cheat sheet, and it'll tell you on the back, do you need another physician to sign or not? Question comes up about residents. I'm a physician. I get to sign it. You sure do, but you have a limited license. So... Up in top box, you may put your name and your limited license number and get all that glorious credit for it. But make sure that your best friend, your attending physician, also gets their glorious credit for it in that same box because you're kind of functioning as one physician together, if you will. So if you are working with a patient that doesn't have capacity and let's say their next of kin is helping you fill out this post, you may sign it, your attending may sign it, you're still going to need a concurring physician down in the bottom. Sometimes people get really excited about who does that concurring physician need to be? Oh, I've got to get a palliator for that. We're happy to help however we can. (laughs) However, don't sell yourself short. The person standing right beside you that's also on the case may be able to do it. So let's say you have GI or neurology or cardiology with you. If they're willing to sign it, they're more than welcome to sign as the concurring physician. It doesn't have to be someone on the primary team. That's all the stuff I just said. It's (laughs) excellent, and you may continue. (laughs) Um, Okay, so we did the form. Now what do we do with it? Um, I love when people get so proud that they've done a pulse. And I'm like, that's great. And then I'm looking in the computer. I'm looking in the computer. Looking in the computer. 
And I say, does anybody else know that you did that post? So how yeah. do we really get it out there that we've done this? Number one, you can make a few copies, which you should do. Give some to the patient. They can just spread it out to all their friends and family. Anybody they want to have one is great. You want to make sure if they're being transported somewhere by ambulance, that the ambulance team has a copy of the post. If they're taking that ambulance to a nursing home, you want to make sure that nursing home has a copy of the post. So usually I'll make some copies, take them into the patient room, disperse it to the people that I talk to, take a few more copies, put them on the paper chart, usually in that little rubber band where they got the transport things stashed, throw one right on in there. And then you can email one to the ACT team registration and they usually have that scanned into Epic usually within an hour. It's very, very fast. What if you don't do that step? It's still going to get scanned into the chart, but it's going to get scanned in after that patient leaves as sort of a routine scanning issue. So that person may be well to their nursing facility and already been there a few days before that gets scanned in. Um, and anytime that happens, you run the risk that somebody may not know that that person has a pulse. So it would be important to do the very best you can to do all those steps. It sounds like a lot of work. It's really not that bad. Hit six on the copier. As that's copying, go ahead and put in the email address. It'll pre-populate on most of the floors. Hit send, and that bad boy is in the chart within an hour. And I guess um, something else that I would add, like if for patients, when they have it at home, some are encouraged to maybe put it on their refrigerator or somewhere mm -hmm. kind of in a prominent spot. Um, I know that some states, I'm thinking about Pennsylvania, they do offer like a pulse bracelet or something like that. So just something to kind of alert um, EMTs that, this patient does have a pulse form. I had a um, family in primary care that actually had a really good idea. It's you, you get to learn your patients and you learn their habits, especially if they're admitted several times. And I had one patient that said, I keep my medicines in a basket and I line the basket with a Walmart bag and all my medicines go in there so that when the ambulance comes, I just grab those handles and go. And I said, let me introduce you to pulse form <laughs> and we're going to fold that up. And I even wrote on there, this one goes in your medicine basket so that that person, whenever they left, and by George, the next time they came into the hospital, here came that pulse form right with them. Of course, it was followed by somebody saying, I don't know what this is, but they said to give it to you. Yes, I'll take it. <laughs> so try to make those practical plans when people say, what am I supposed to do with this? A lot of times asking them where their medicines are or putting one on their fridge is a great idea. Yeah, and I think uh, what it said, our advanced care planning team, they have the, what's the plan in the can. So maybe mm -hmm. put it in that. There we go. Plan in the can. <laughs> Um, these are just the websites. You can go to the National Post. Again, for those of you who are going to be training in another state in the next couple of years, go ahead and make things easier on yourself. Look up your Pulse rules before you get there. You may be educating the rest of your group, um, and you'll look like a rock star. So good for you. And then the Georgia Post, uh, as we mentioned. Okay, so in summary, I guess what? Pulse is an easy form. One side, cheat sheet on the back. Um, photocopies are acceptable, and I guess any, any incomplete section means full press, okay, uh, and the physician will write uh, code status orders based on what's completed on the floor. It seems simple enough. But too good to be true. Too good. To, I know. It's, so, it's like we're doing an infomercial. Uh, but I can only imagine, and this is from a little experience, that this one form, one order, can generate probably a lot of questions, a lot of apprehension. Um, I'll stop there because I think we're going to open it up for questions. Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
Any questions? Any questions? The ethicist can't have them all, but you know, what you got? Mm, she says that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, I have the microphone. We are recording for online, so if there's any questions or comments, um, we'll need to use the microphone. All right. I'll present the question that we got, uh, that I got a lot at um, institution in North Carolina. <laughs> not going to do a voice, but, you know, they look at the form and then they'll say, I don't know who this is. I'm not following it. And I can see where that's a, a concern, like, you know, we don't know all the physicians in our area, but there was a conversation that was had, there was care that was put into it. Um, with the Georgia law, there are protections for people who follow it in good faith. So documenting that you followed it, you don't have to go through the whole process of, you know, contacting that physician, asking them however many questions to determine whether or not, you know, it was done in good faith. Uh, the form and following it as it is presented is protected uh, under Georgia law. But it was really kind of interesting how that one question, and I think probably because of the NPs and the PAs who were allowed to sign, I think that just kind of opened up the possibility for concern for some of those physicians. So, You know, I heard an interesting conversation about that once previously where somebody said, well, I'm not doing that. And, but because of the way that they said, this was at another facility, of course, um, but they said, I don't, um, I won't accept, I don't accept that. It's kind of just, they're like, oh, that's sweet, pat on the head. No, thank you. I don't accept that. And the reply that I had heard was something to the effect of, well, this patient's not really in the stage of acceptance with their disease process either. But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It's still there. It still happened. Um, and we think about all of these things that patients relate to, to us, that other providers relate to us. We do a ton of stuff off of history, that subjective data. Mm -hmm. This is an objective thing. Another physician did this. They documented it. You wouldn't say if somebody sent you records from another hospital, you wouldn't be like, oh, that was sweet. We're going to do it ourselves. We're going to do that whole thing. Don't worry about that. I know you had a biopsy report. We're going to do it again, just to let you know. So, so think about the things you're doing. The other thing is I think a lot of people feel very committed by this physician order. Why does the word order scare us? How many of you have put in an order today? Like a bazillion times already. Yeah. So we do orders all the time. We do code status orders all the time. Why does this form scare us? So just think through that. Like, are we asking you to move a mountain? Is the patient asking you to do some crazy outlandish thing? No, they're asking you to put in an order, which we do all the time. Okay, let's see. We have a question here. Uh, so just like a hypothetical, um, I'm guessing it would most likely be, uh, like the physician would be covered under the post laws, but like a patient uh, comes in, they're in triage, they luckily have a pulse order form with their bag of medicine, and all of a sudden they code, and their daughter, son is there, visibly distraught. They say, you know, I don't know what this order is. <clears throat> I've never seen this form before. I'm the legal next of kin. I want to rescind the pulse full code. Now, in that situation, would the physician be 
Carver to follow the pulse order or kind of what are the implications there? So the very palliative answer for that is that warrants a discussion, just like, and this is very akin to the discussion when somebody says, well, we don't want to honor that advanced directive. Um, and so the question becomes, why? Now, when someone's coding, that has to be a pretty fast conversation. Yes. But I think it's definitely worth saying, because you're going to actually know from looking at that form, did that person make those decisions by themselves with a physician, right? Because you know from how many signatures are on there and the boxes checked that they did it themselves. So you can say they had this conversation with Dr. Gill in like their last admission a month ago, and they said they didn't want that. We need to discuss why do you feel that there's something different here? Why do you feel like we need to honor that differently? Um, and so when we think about a situation where a patient is, I might trip over my words on this a little bit, because this is a hard question to answer. Um, when a patient no longer has capacity, we still do goals of care discussions, right? Mm -hmm. Because that person can't make decisions for themselves anymore, and that person can't pop up, say, time out on the code and say, well, this is actually a different situation than what I had planned. It's a different set of circumstances surrounding. Mm -hmm. I've had folks before say, that's when I didn't think I had anything to live for. And now, I, in one very specific case, someone said, I have a new love interest that I've met online, and I want to change it. So there's any number of things that could change somebody's situation. So the, the first thing is to say, help me understand why they would feel differently about this now. Um, because that person no longer has capacity, they have a decision maker for them, and it is very possible, and they are able to say, they would not feel this way any longer in this given set of circumstances. Do you have anything else to say about that? I mean, and even in that situation where, you know, we're adding multiple uh, layers, as far as um, the daughter or uh, child, you know, adult child, um, saying that we still want whoever is the health care agent to make decisions based on the patient's desires, what the patient would want, uh, utilizing uh, conversations, substituted judgment. So in that situation, and I get it, it's scary as far as this paper is not talking, but this person is yelling in my face. Um, there's a desire to appease the person who is yelling. Um, I do like your question, though. It's you know, you know, how quickly can we, you know, well, that's not the question I like. But the question I do like is, you know, like, what, what's changed? Or what information do you know about the patient that's changed? And again, trying to center it back onto the patient. Um, there are times when, especially family issues, kind of come up, and if we're honest, uh, a lot of that does not necessarily center around the patient. Uh, it's centering around their lack of comfort uh, with whatever is being discussed. So how quickly can we center it back to the patient and not only what the patient is going through, but also the patient's decisions? And if they, again, went through the efforts of making their decisions known, we have to, in turn, follow it. And I do know it's easier said than done. but. There are protections as far as with the law, protections within our policy, um, but some of that 
like I said, easier said than done. It's going to probably be a case-by-case -case situation. There will probably be, there's always one, end of one uh, in all these conversations. The other thing um, that I will do sometimes is kind of draw that correlate to a different situation. Um, so, for instance, this is an order that we would be, in theory, putting in. So let's say in your situation, this is a DNR order that I would be putting in for this patient if I'm admitting them to the ICU. And a family has come and they want to essentially change that order, right? So doesn't that sound very similar to when you had a patient out on the floor that says, I don't want to be resuscitated. Things go sideways. They get moved to the ICU. They're intubated. They're propofol. They can't make decisions anymore. And the family says, we want to change their code status. Like, try to remember that's the same situation. You placed an order or some other physician on before you placed an order. The family came and changed that. You've tried to engage in whatever discussion that you can. And for all intents and purposes, they feel the situation is different and the patient would feel differently. Mm -hmm. Then you should change the order. Thank you. Okay. We do have one online. Yeah. I forgot about our online friend. Okay. Is there anything that would override the post? Other than the conversation that we kind of just had that probably overlapped a little bit as well. Um, maybe thinking in terms of paperwork, like would an advanced directive override a post? It wouldn't. Yeah, the only thing I can think as far as overriding the post would be if the patient changed their mind and wanted to. Oh, great do question. Else. So let's say your patient friend. Again, I'm forgetting about the mic. Your patient friend has made a post and they feel great about it, and they have had a life change where things are different, and they say, ah, and we, I think we've seen this in sim labs, we've seen this out on the floors, mm -hmm. where patients said, oh no, and they're so distressed about this form they made, and they're like, I did the wrong thing, and they're like in tears about it, and you just say, that's cool, we have another one. You just fill out another one. The most, re you should make every effort to dispose of the prior one, Yes. But the new one, just like with an advanced directive, the newer one is the one that would supersede the older one. And if they change it again in a week, you should probably have some more conversation about just, why yes. we're changing our yes. minds so quickly. <laughs> but you could do another one in a week. That's a great question, and Libby, you can back me up on this. When we, when you scan something into the ACT team registration, they are going to file that away. You know, you do the little hover to discover over the code status, and it has the little pop-up box. You click in that pop-up box, and it'll label out all the things that they've had. So if they had a post already, and you've put in a new post, um, that one will be listed as deleted, or it will actually be taken out, Libby. Expired and revoked. And if you don't know, open them and see what the date is. Yes. But yes, they will. They usually take care of that. So that's another hard win for go ahead and email it to the ACT team registration rather than just leave it on the paper chart and it'll eventually get scanned in. Excellent. Any other questions or comments? Um, okay, one more over here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry. I overset. <laughs> Um, so just for clarity, um, you mentioned the bands for people at home, the pulse um, document at home. So I'm thinking of a situation where 
Um, someone fills out the pulse, makes himself a full DNR, no interventions. Will so EMT should honor that in the home and not resuscitate someone, correct? Correct. Okay, thank you. Now, as far as the bands and the, uh, that is not a Georgia thing, uh, unless they have like, what is it, some peaches or something with pulse on it? I don't know. Uh, that is not uh, in Georgia. Sounds fun. No, it does. It does. It does. But um, that is, I'm just based on uh, experience in Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania, rather. One other thing, and this came up in one of our ethics discussions not too long ago, is um, you know, you hear patients occasionally say, I'm going to get that tattooed on, you know, yes. and somebody gets a DNR. And so then that question raises, like, what does that mean? And does does that mean? Again, yeah. a, a table talk for another time. But um, very important that we don't assume that DNRs do not resuscitate and not the names of your baby or the initials of your child or what have you. So um, I know we all kind of giggle at that, but it happens. ask us why that conversation comes up. Yeah, so. uh, yeah, that's why the juror, uh, the little bracelets and everything uh, came up in Pennsylvania is because there was, it's kind of funny kind of thinking about it now, but there were like a number of persons, you know, at senior centers and nursing homes who were going getting tattoos. Um, so it was just an effort to kind of regulate some of it, which sounds like a good trip to me. I was actually just thinking that. I don't know that anybody no. is tough enough for that whole thing. But yeah, I mean, because that this... if it comes up, we'll discuss it and let you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe on their back or something. This is, this is pretty. It's pretty intense. Okay. Any other questions or comments? All right. Thank you. Great discussion. Uh, one more announcement. On April 16th is National Healthcare Decision Day. So for the month of April, Library Services and our Advanced Care Planning Team decided to plan a few activities to bring awareness to Healthcare Decision Day. So there will be a virtual book club discussing the book, Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant by Roz Cast, and also there will be table talks. You can Google NGHS Book Club to find out more information um, about those activities. Thank you.